quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everybody. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. And look, there is a lot going on this evening. And we have, with breaking news on Capitol Hill, we'll begin with that tonight, because the all-powerful House Ways and Means Committee, which is led by Democrats, as you know, for now, voting tonight to release the former president, Donald Trump's tax returns to the public. The committee's vote was along party lines, and it's a giant defeat for Trump. So he's fought for years now to keep all of his tax information private, citing audits and the like. Now, also tonight, sources saying that the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is on his way to Washington, D.C. at this very hour. He will meet with the president of the United States tomorrow at the White House, as expected, and may also address a joint session of Congress. And now here's a CNN exclusive tonight. Sources are saying that Trump's former White House ethics lawyer told Cassidy Hutchinson, remember she was the star witness of the January 6th hearings, that person apparently gave the, her the advice to give misleading testimony to the committee. And yes, I said a White House ethics lawyer. So you try to figure that out if you can. I want to start now with CNN chief congressional correspondent Manu Raju, who is live on Capitol Hill tonight. Manu, a lot is going on. Let's begin with those taxes. When are we going to learn more about these taxes and maybe even see them? Yeah, we could actually see these very soon. And it could be a significant amount of information that Donald Trump has spent years trying to protect and not release to the public, contending he was under endless audit, going to court to battle them, ultimately turned over to Congress uh, just a few weeks ago. And then now tonight, in a party-line vote, House Democrats voting to move ahead and to release these into public. Now, what we're talking about here is six years of Trump's tax returns, including tax returns for eight affiliate businesses, We also expect to see IRS audit reports, as well as two reports. The the Joint Committee on Taxation, which is a nonpartisan group that analyzes taxes, we expect that report to come out tonight, as well as the committee's report analyzing these tax returns. That also will be released tonight, according to committee officials. Now, when I asked the chairman of the committee, Richie Neal, about whether or not those returns, the actual returns themselves, will be in public, he said they'll come out within days. How quickly do you expect these returns? It's going to take a few days, but we believe that it's only days. It's, it won't go well beyond that. The uh, staff is on top of it. One of the things that we are going to take great pains to do, you might have heard the end of it tonight when you were in uh, Longworth, and that is uh, the redactions that have to take place to protect some very important considerations, social security numbers, PIN numbers, banking accounts, you know, those sorts of things. But... Uh, the, the Ways and Means staff, and I have faith in the Republican staffers, let them serve as a check on what it is that we want to do, but they ought to reach an accommodation to make sure that, that those uh, protections are built in. 
So those, that information will take a little bit more time to play out, but time is of the essence here. Democrats are only in power, Laura, for just a couple more weeks before Republicans take control of the House on January 3rd, which is one big reason why Republicans crying foul as Democrats in their final days of power here moving to do something that they had been demanding for some time, seeing Donald Trump's tax returns in public, and we should be able to see those very soon. I mean, part of the reason there has been the delay, though, as you know, was the claims that because he was being audited, he couldn't possibly hand things over from the candidacy, of course, throughout the presidency and now up to this point in time. It's been a four-year window, really. So what are they saying now about whether Trump was actually being audited? Was he? Is he still? Yeah, this is actually a key takeaway that will be an issue of debate and exploration going forward. Presidents are required to go under a mandatory audit after they become take the oath of office. According to the committee, that did not happen with Donald Trump. In fact, they say in April 2019, Donald Trump was uh, an audit began over Donald Trump's returns, and that only began, they believe, because chair, the chairman of the committee, Richie Neal, who you just saw, sent a letter to the IRS at that exact time, April 2019, asking about those tax returns. They said then that's when the audit started over Donald Trump's returns. And then they said it was an an audit that never was completed. All those returns, those six years of returns that they have obtained, the audits were not actually completed for Donald Trump. And I also asked about the contention of Trump that he said that he's always under audit. He has never seen an audit completed. Neil declined to comment on that specific issue, saying these are issues that we are still looking through as well. And other, one other point, Laura, I asked both Chairman Neil and the Republican on the, the top Republican on the committee, Kevin Brady, whether or not there was anything concerning in those returns. Brady said this is still being looked at by the IRS and declined to comment. Neil, too, also declined to comment. Well, so, I mean, has the former president or any other Republicans commented on where we are right now? Yeah, we are hearing some uh, pushback from Republicans. Uh, those Republicans on the committee, like Kevin Brady, the top Republican on the committee, crying foul, criticizing the Democrats for weaponizing Donald Trump's personal financial information, saying that this was not the proper way this should be handled, calling it a sad day for democracy and going on and defending Donald Trump. Trump spokesman himself uh, put out a statement earlier also where he, he essentially accused the Democrats of take going, taking this action, saying... This unprecedented leak by lame duck Democrats is proof that they are playing a political game they are losing. If this injustice can happen to President Trump, Trump, it can happen to all Americans without cause. But very little they can do here, given they lost that battle for years in court. Ultimately, Democrats won, which is why they have the returns. And now that they are still in power in the House, taking action to release them. Laura. Manu, what a night and what a beginning. We know a couple days, whenever it might be. Thank you so much for your reporting. Always insightful. I want to bring in and turn to our clinical commentators here at CNN, Jonah Goldberg and Paul Bagala, also Norm Eisen, CNN legal analyst and also a former House Judiciary Special Counsel in Trump's first impeachment trial. We also have Russ Butner. He is the investigative reporter for the New York Times. Russ, I want to begin with you because you really do have extraordinary expertise specifically as it relates to Trump's taxes. You took a deep dive into some of those taxes back in 2020, and now we are waiting at any moment, maybe it'll take days, to get more information. So I'm wondering, what do you think so far of what we've learned just tonight alone about these new developments? Well, I found it just starkly alarming that the presidential audit that is supposed to happen of every president 
appears to have not happened of this president for the first couple of years he was in office, if I understood what some of the congressmen were saying correctly. That's really alarming. We've never had a president who had a sort of more complicated financial picture than Donald Trump. It has to be like the best case for why such an audit should exist, and they didn't do it. And I, I have to wonder if it was somehow wrapped up in this long-standing audit of a massive refund that he got uh, 10 years ago. Uh, we're also apparently going to hear more of what we revealed in 2020, which is that he has had uh, enormous business losses over the years, uh, that he's been under some financial pressure, and that he rarely, if ever, pays much in income taxes. Yes, on that point, and I'm glad, I want to make sure we're all very clear about this delineation between these two things. There's the audit that he claimed to have been under as to why he couldn't release as a candidate. Then there's the mandatory presidential audit supposed to be conducted. And that seems to be the hook legislatively that this committee is talking about. But on the point of the 2020, I mean, part of the sort of feedback that you're hearing is the idea of, well, we have seen some of the information, right, through your own reporting back in 2020 and beyond. I'm wondering, one of the things that Congressman Doggett has had to say the former president claimed tens of millions of dollars in losses, but with no supporting documents to actually substantiate those claims. How is that possible? And, and did you experience that segment of it in your own reporting? Yeah, I heard Congressman Doggett say that. It's an excellent question. I think what he was talking about is that when the IRS uh, started the audit, they didn't ask him for those kind of supporting documents which would be a usual process during an audit. And the tax returns itself themselves don't show that. That would have to be in other records they would obtain. We had uh, some records of audits, ongoing audits that I could see, but that again doesn't show the underlying process of the examination and, and all the sort of guts of the thing, requesting records, analyzing those records, questions back and forth. Um, but I think that's what he was referring to is that he wasn't required it's pretty extraordinary if they did an audit and they're looking at something that's resulting in millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars in revenue resulting in no income taxes due to business failures and other write-offs that they didn't ask for documentation of those. Mm. That would be a, a pretty extraordinary occurrence. Let's bring in our panel here as well, because, I mean, if getting right down to the issue, gentlemen, you know, you've got the idea of the curiosity when he was a candidate the first time being a candidate of, I wonder if he really has as much money as he says he has. Does he really have the empire, he says? There was the curiosity in this figure. Then it was, hold on, why don't you want to hand over the information? There's began to be a skepticism from that curiosity. But now that we are really at his second, well, his third election bid, I'm wondering, first of all, do you think that the release of the information now and this quest at this point is as crucial or necessary or warranted? What do you think? Norm? Uh, I do think that it's justified. The law of the United States is that the House Ways and Means Committee, Chairman Neal, who's been very careful, Laura, has the power to obtain these returns and to publish them. That is the law of the land. They've done a balance. And you're, you're looking here at an individual who flouted, and it was my job in the Obama White House to clear the Obama taxes for release. He flouted that modern practice of releasing his taxes. There were the most serious constitutional questions about payments from foreign governments, so-called emoluments. I litigated them. Domestic emoluments, you can't get them from the states. 
That may be in the tax returns. Now his business has been convicted for two counts of tax fraud with a larger investigation continuing as to him. He's running again. I think on the weighing and balances, balancing, yes, I'm concerned about the privacy, but these other considerations far outweigh it. He's waived any right to claim the privacy of these returns. Yeah, I, I, can't, I don't see it that way at all. I mean, I, I have no sympathy for Donald Trump in this. He violated a whole bunch of norms. He, not, not this norm, but other norms. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't let him. <laughs> um, but, uh, and he's a shady businessman. I think he lied about his wealth. All of that stuff. He deserves the trouble that he's invited for himself for years and years and years. And wait, by the way, we do now have the report. Manu's going through it as we speak, and we're going to come back to that point. But just because the chairman has the power doesn't mean he should do it. And I've heard nothing from anybody, um, from various congressmen on the committee and elsewhere, that provides a, uh, that has a connective tissue of a legislative purpose, which is the reason why he has every reason to look at them. I think he was right to look at them. But to release them publicly creates a moral hazard and a bad precedent, and it just feels punitive. And I don't think that that's a good precedent for the country to release private tax returns for, because he has it coming. That's not a legislative purpose. Well, their purpose in part, as you, I mean, the, the idea of the mandatory audit, right, that has to happen when, pre, when you have a president. And I'm, I'm not saying that's the all-encompassing, but that's the stated reason the Democrats are talking about, the idea there's a mandatory audit that has to be fulfilled and that it was not done. And their whole legislative oversight function is to figure out why that wasn't the case and what loopholes may be there. But how do you see it? Right. Well, since the Magna Carta in 1215, we've said no one is above the law. It looks like Mr. Trump put himself above the law. If that's true. This is early reporting. We don't really know. I don't want to draw conclusions. Uh, but So we do need to know that. But who is we? Right? The Congress has to know. They have a 100-year-old law that says the Treasury shall release to the Ways and Means Committee any tax return they request. Shall. Trump flouted that, litigated it. But I'm kind of more with Jonah that I'm mm. worried about the precedent. Now, I, I'm old enough to recall in the Obama presidency, Republicans were running Ways and Means Committee. They did release some private tax returns, not of Barack Obama's because he put them out, but they had some IRS conspiracy theory that they were, so they released private information then. It was wrong then. Um, I, it's a tougher call here because if this allegation is true, his monitor's reporting is true, then he, somehow he was placed above the law that, that ever the president had to follow. And then what we really should have done, what we should do now, is pass a law that says every major candidate for president has to release, pick a number, seven years. You have to keep yeah. seven years. Yeah. Seven years. Joe, Joe Biden's released, I think, 20, 30, 40, you know, and, and it should be a law, though. It should, we shouldn't have to be fighting this and wondering, gee whiz, what it, because in, in five minutes, the Republicans are going to control that committee, and whose taxes are they going to put out? You know, uh, we're to say bye. I want to bring in Russ on this point as well and get your take, because there's, there's some disagreement here at the table. The idea of, on the one hand, there's the precedent that it could set of having given out these information. There's also the precedent that would be set if you did not have the modern precedents followed from prior presidents. But my, one of the questions is, I mean, there's a, a clock here. It's a sort of Damocles for this particular Congress. They are considered lame duck for a reason. And we're days away, really, from a new Congress being sworn in. The thing tells me they're not going to be as concerned as the Democratic-led House Ways and Means Committee on this issue. So what happens next then? I mean, this all has to be you know, divulged now, but then what? January is, what, two weeks away. Right, right. I mean, th- 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 there is a real reason to for someone to look at these things. Right. You, mm-hmm. When you look at Donald Trump's income taxes and his financial disclosure forms, you, the first thing you realize is that our process for vetting whether 
candidates or presidents have vulnerabilities in their finances that might make them subject to manipulation, or whether they're getting cash in places that aren't to do with business. There are basically bribes masked as a business transaction. Our process does not capture that. The tax returns don't capture that. The financial disclosure forms don't capture that. Looking at Donald Trump's situation, you could figure out reasons, how ways to fix that in some uh, serious way. But again, like you said, there's a clock ticking. The Republicans are going to stop this action right away. There's a possibility if it's read into the record, the Senate Finance Committee will pick it up or another congressional committee somewhere down the road will pick it up. Not so much related to Donald Trump, but really trying to fix that baked in problem we have, which is just figuring out whether our presidents are subject to manipulation because of their finances. A really important point. We're going to return to that as well as the discussion in Jonah's point. Is this just punitive for the sake of being punitive to Donald Trump? That's a talking point coming out right now. And the discussion has been had for a number of years now about what this would really mean. But look, we now have the report on Trump's taxes at the House and Ways and Means Committee voted to release tonight. We're going to go through it and we'll keep bringing you information as we get it. And there's another major development tonight. Ukraine's president will be in Washington tomorrow. It's the first time that he's left Ukraine since Russia's invasion. We're live at the White House right after this. Do you realize that today marks 300 days, 300 days since Russia invaded Ukraine? And as the conflict continues to rage on, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is now planning to visit Washington tomorrow. This is his first foreign trip since the war began. CNN Chief White House Correspondent Phil Mattingly joins us now with more. I mean, this is really significant that he's planning on coming. What can you expect? What are you hearing? Yeah, Laura, it's historic. It is certainly symbolic, given the moment that we are in right now, both with this conflict and more broadly geopolitically. But it is also very substantive. And what's interesting here, according to sources I've spoken to, is that despite the fact Ukrainian officials have been traveling to the U.S. throughout the course of the war, this trip actually came together rather recently and very quickly. And at its core, beyond the first face-to-face meeting between the two presidents since the war started back in February, is what it will entail. There will be in-depth Discussions between the two presidents. President Zelensky will also meet with President Biden's top national security officials, but it will also include a $1.8 billion in new security assistance. And inside that security assistance, the most substantial effort the U.S. has made yet to expand the capabilities of the Ukrainians on the ground, most notably Patriot missile defense systems. These are the systems that President Zelensky has been calling for for several months, including in private phone calls with President Biden. Up to the last couple of weeks, the White House was not willing to go down this path. They changed course given Russia's escalation and targeting civilian infrastructure. And tomorrow, the president, side by side with President Zelensky, will announce that they will soon be on their way to Ukraine. I mean, you've got the new Congress coming in. There's obviously, yep. I just thinking about, there must be extraordinary security concerns and, and precautions being taken with President Zelensky now being outside of Ukraine. Um, and we understand that there might actually include some sort of address to Congress. We know we've seen it virtually throughout the course of this invasion. But what is the Biden administration's, what are their plans for future aid now that you've got a new Congress coming in? There is a number that you cite, but especially since the GOP has been more skeptical about spending on Ukraine. Is, is that part of the motivation for why he's coming? 
Yeah, I think it's implicit in everything that happens tomorrow, and I think it really threads into why President Zelensky is scheduled to give a primetime address to a joint session of Congress tomorrow. It is still not totally locked in. You mentioned those security concerns. They're more palpable up on Capitol Hill. But he will be visiting Congress if he makes that trip to Capitol Hill at the same moment that lawmakers are in the process of voting on an additional $45 billion in aid to Ukraine. And if you look through the scale of the U.S. assistance to Ukraine over the course of the last year, you get a sense of just how substantial it is, starting with $13.6 billion, then a $40 billion package as well. This current package at $45 billion. And if you want to break out what this current package actually represents, you get an understanding of the scope of things. It's not just military assistance. This package includes an additional $9 billion in defense assistance, but also $12 billion for the U.S. to replenish its own stocks, $13 billion in economic support as the country attempts to maintain some semblance of an economy given the invasion, and then another $9 billion in humanitarian support. You think about all the refugees, you think about the scale of the suffering, particularly as the civilian infrastructure has been targeted. If nothing else, the size of this package, the symbolism of this moment underscores one thing I hear over and over again from U.S. officials, and that is there is no end to this war coming anytime soon, and that means the U.S. support, at least in the words of President Biden, will continue as, quote, as long as it takes, Laura. Just like now all those figures, Phil, and just thinking about the human cost at stake, yeah. too, that is yet to be quantified, if ever it could be. Phil Madeline, thank you so much. New tonight as well. Remember that moment that they were talking about in the committee yesterday about somebody trying to encourage a witness to not be forthcoming? Well, we've now learned that a Trump White House ethics lawyer urged the January 6th committee's star witness, Cassidy Hutchinson, to give misleading testimony. Stay with us. All right, we've got a CNN exclusive tonight. In the summary of its final report, the January 6th committee claims it is evidence that a Trump-backed attorney urged a key witness to mislead the committee. We now know who that witness was and also the lawyer they are referring to. Now, we've learned here at CNN that it is Stefan Passantino, the top ethics attorney in the Trump White House, who allegedly advised his then-client, Cassidy Hutchinson, a former White House aide, to forget that she remembered certain things. According to the committee, the lawyer said, quote, they don't know what you know. They don't know that you can recall some of these things. So you saying, I don't recall, is an entirely acceptable response to this. And on a particular issue that would cast a bad light on President Trump, the attorney apparently allegedly said, no, 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 no. We don't want to go there. We don't want to talk about that. Now, in a statement to CNN, Passantino says, quote, I represented Ms. Hutchinson honorably, ethically, and fully consistent with her sole interests as she communicated them to me, unquote. Back with us now, Jonah Goldberg, Paul Begala, and Norm Eisen. Is there any doubt I'm going to the former ethics czar? <laughs> norm, well, norm, Norm. I'm... Uh... Acquainted with Stefan Passantino, you know, there's a family of former White House ethics chiefs. Uh, we all keep in touch. And I think he tried when he was in the Trump administration. He tried mightily. And that's not easy when Donald Trump is your client to keep the White House on uh, its ethical course. It went off course. And now and it saddens me to say so, Laura, because I know him. Stefan Passantino has gone 
uh, off course. I mean, to tell a witness that they don't know what you know, uh, that uh, they don't know you can recall something, to not go there when there's a question. If that's true, and on the committee has done their investigation, and I believe Cassidy Hutchinson on this, he's gone badly off course. There was a sign he started representing the election deniers, an assault on our democracy even before we learned this. But this is really a sign that he's gone off course. And it's particularly tragic when it happens to somebody whose job is ethics. I think he's at serious ethics exposure now himself and maybe possible criminal risk, depending on how DOJ accepts this information. The allegations of warning perjury in some way. Uh, Yeah, as you know, there's multiple federal uh, criminal statutes, obstruction of justice. The um, uh, committee uh, has focused on that. Um, Obstruction of a congressional investigation, obstruction of an official proceeding in Congress, uh, warning perjury. Uh, possible. We'll see what DOJ does with it. But I think it also creates ethics issues. And what can I tell you? I believe Cassidy Hutchison. You know, we think about this, guys, and I want you to weigh in on this. I mean, there are some people out there who are not fans of lawyers, right? And they'll say, well, how is this really different? Don't all lawyers tell their clients something like this? The answer is, first of all, no, they don't do that. They want to encourage truth telling, obviously. But then there's also the idea of that statement he makes, that he was doing so in her sole, her sole interest. He's saying that because in part of who's paying his bill, right? Right. Well, there's a report of the committee alleges that right. a Trump uh, PAC, a Trump-aligned mm-hmm. PAC, was in fact paying him to represent her. These things happen. But his, his obligation, you know, as a, as a real lawyer, I have a law degree, I'm a member of the bar, but I never practiced, right? But his obligation is to defend her zealously. And her allegation, if true, is very, very serious. Uh, it is, I know Norm like, knows the guy. I don't. The notion of being like the ethics cop in the Trump White House, it's like, you know, sensitivity trainer for Kanye West. You know, it's just like <laughs> you got no hope. Um, and this guy now, he's going to have to lawyer up. And this, we're seeing this. All of Mr. Trump, not all, a great many of Mr. Trump's lawyers, from Rudy Giuliani to John Eastman, who was replete in the committee's hearing yesterday, uh, yeah. to, to Sidney Powell. Th- these, these folks are all themselves getting into trouble. And, and I, I do, I think it's, I, I can't think of anybody, really, who got in Trump's orbit and came out looking better. Mm, he just so- seems to disgrace and but pollute everyone. You make a very interesting point, because if you look at the names that were named yesterday, there was Trump the client. But others than Meadows, all of the main people who were named by the committee were lawyers, right? Eastman, Clark, Chespero, Giuliani. So out of the six people really identified in the criminal referral section, Trump is like the neutron bomb of clients. He wipes out the lawyers. He has an ability, Trump has a well-established ability of corrupting one serious people or attracting seriously corrupt people. (laughs) And um, I, you know, I, I think sort of the political takeaway from this is that the criminal referral thing, which got all of this hullabaloo, and it, I think was a legitimate historical thing to do and a moral necessity to do and all of that, but legally was sort of a no- nothing burger because the Justice Department was already investigating. The real significance of the closing up of the January 6th committee is the passing along of all these kinds of details, things that give DOJ leverage for interviewing people, 
new leads that they can follow up on. The criminal referral stuff was nice theatrics, but the actual meat of the transcripts of interviews is the stuff that the DOJ is going to get the most out of. And, of course, the explanation of who is in that umbrella term of and others, right? We're talking to the and others aspect of it. And I note that Vice President Mike Pence made the comment yesterday in reaction to all this that, well, it's not criminal to follow the bad advice of a lawyer. Well, there may be some issues with that statement as well. Everyone stick around. We have more reporting on the tax returns that have come out in terms of what's been published. We're going to talk about with Mano Raju in just a moment. All right, we're getting some new information on the report the House Ways and Means Committee voted to release tonight, remember, on Trump's tax returns. We've got the CNN chief congressional correspondent, Manu Raju, who's live on Capitol Hill tonight. He's been pouring through this report. Manu, what are you seeing? Yeah, there are actually two reports that the committee released tonight. One was the committee's investigation of this mandatory presidential audit program that the IRS is supposed to do on presidents, sitting presidents, and how that was done when Donald Trump was president. Another one is an analysis by the nonpartisan Joint Committee on Taxation looking at six years of Donald Trump's individual tax returns, as well as tax returns from his from his businesses. Now, uh, in the investigation into the IRS mandatory audit program, the committee finds that it was not working. It was dormant, as they say, at best, and concerning during the Trump administration. They say that this is an important program to ensure that a president does not have any conflicts of interest, financial conflicts of interest, particularly as he signs bills into law. But in this case, they say it was only conducted in the aftermath of Richard Neal, the chairman of the committee, making a request in 2019 to start to, to look into Donald Trump's tax returns. <clears throat> That's when the actual audit took place, even though Donald Trump was president since from uh, after the 2016 elections from 2017, all the way up until January of 2021. Now, um, the, the committee goes on to say that uh, in that investigation that the White House, even in 2018, the White House press secretary contended that Donald Trump was under a mandatory presidential audit, but he was not at that time. Now, that goes into some situ- concerns they have with there, and they suggest <laughs> a legislative response in fixing what they could see are problems with this audit program. Now, on the separate analysis over his tax returns. We are still pouring through it. It's a very technical analysis, looking through all the numbers that Donald Trump submitted in his tax returns. It gives a summary of these returns. It raises, it says there are some issues that require further investigations, like the number of deductions that he took, charitable deductions, other business-related deductions, questioning whether they're business or personal. And it doesn't provide any sort of judgment on that, only suggests that perhaps this is an issue in which investigators and others may want to look further into. But that is a about this report, the uh, Joint Committee on Taxation's report I'm holding up right here, uh, about 35 pages in length, very detailed, getting through the numbers, if you can see on the screen right here. So we are still trying to learn all of the nuances of this report, but it is something that the investigators here on Capitol Hill, these key committees, had wanted to know what exactly was in his returns. And this is just part, ultimately, of what will be turned over, Laura. We do expect the full scope, all of the returns, ultimately to be released after some key information is redacted. That will be released within days. But here we're getting a taste, an early taste of what exactly the committee was concerned with and how the IRS looked at Donald Trump's taxes and what those taxes said. Laura? And we're all getting an early taste of just how dense this material is. And you wonder how it's going to be perceived and received and understood by the general public, even if it is released. Manu Raju, thank you so much. Thank you. Also, yet another major story we're following tonight 
There are two January 6th investigations, and they are converging in a very big way. The House Select Committee referring Donald Trump for criminal charges for his role in the insurrection. They're now sharing a trove of evidence with the Justice Department. That includes, by the way, transcripts of witness interviews that federal investigators have long been seeking. Now, a source familiar with the handover says the Office of the Special Counsel will ultimately end up with all of the evidence that the panel has already collected. Meanwhile, Rusty Bowers was among the witnesses that we saw testify in public. The Arizona House Speaker shined a bright light on the pressure campaign on states to overturn the 2020 election results. Did you tell the president in that second call that you supported him, that you voted for him, but that you were not going to do anything illegal for him? I did, sir. Nevertheless, his lawyer, John Eastman, called you some days later on June 4th, 2021. And he did have a very specific ask that would have required you to do just what you had already told the president you wouldn't do, something that would violate your oath. Is that correct? That's correct. So does he think the committee made the right call to refer the former president for prosecution? Well, let's ask him, because Rusty Bowers is with us now this evening. Mr. Bowers, thank you for joining us today. I mean, I'm, I'm really champing at the bit, given the testimony that we all remember so well and um, your personal experience with this, the set of facts in this case. You were a very important witness for this committee, and I'm wondering what you make of the decision that they had to refer a president for criminal charges? Well, A, it's extremely disappointing that that uh, the actions of an individual would lead to this and that would affect so many other individuals to support uh, activity that, in my view, is contrary to law and is certainly is contrary to the best interests of governance in the United States. Uh, I'm, I'm not a prosecutor. I'm not a member of a grand jury. Uh, there wasn't uh, a lot of uh, uh, interplay with lawyers in this particular uh, commission. But I think the information that was given uh, by witnesses, by those who were with me and many others, uh, shows a pattern uh, that, that is corrupt and manipulative and I believe hurts, harms, uh, America's view of the presidency. Now, are all presidents perfect? You know, school, uh, grade school children walking around with nice little pinafores and bow ties? No, of course not. But there is a basic respect for this institution that I think was sorely lacking, and that's being very kind. And um, so it's very disappointing that it comes to this. I'm not surprised by it. Uh, it's... Uh, it's just hard. You know, the idea of it being contrary to law, to me, synonym for what's criminal, you know, as a former prosecutor myself and thinking about what this looks like. And I'm wondering when you talk about the disappointment and the manipulation and the corruption, what stand stood out to you in terms of what you experienced personally versus what you actually heard that expanded on what you experienced as well with this committee? What was the moment that you said... It's too far. Well, when Mr. Raffensperger sitting right next to me said that, and I watched the video of the president saying to him, just go out and find me 11,000 votes or whatever it was. And I'm thinking, is this like, 
is this like a raffle at the at the local uh, Walmart? And we, this, the idea that I could do that in my state, and then over and over with other things, what he said to me, uh, he was, Mr. Giuliani was mostly the bulldog in my our conversations, uh, and uh, but he was very much present and very much supportive and and wanted my quote unquote cooperation. He never threatened me. I never felt like I was being intimidated per se. And I, I don't know that a phone call from the president of the United States might be intimidating. I, I never felt that way. But the overall package comes out that it's not only that it happened, but that it was planned to happen and that there were many participants at many levels trying to get this to happen, to push it through. Some of them interacted with me, others interacted with others. Uh, so it was, it was, it was a large deal. And, Absolutely. Uh, the scope of it as well, Rusty, is thinking about as you, as you take it, do you, do you want to see this president prosecuted? Uh, I think that would be a, a, a terrible thing to witness. I, I don't want it. It's not like I have some vendetta against Donald Trump. Uh, but that would be up to the prosecutors and up to the up to those uh, at the Department of Justice. They know better than I. I don't have any particular pleasure in watching this all unfold. I think it's extremely sad. And I would like to see people evaluate all of ourselves. And uh, my dad once said, you know, you look at a good man, you try to be like him. You look at a bad man, you look at yourself real hard. And, and I just, uh, it's a bad example. Um, and I, I certainly hope that we can evaluate our own lives at all levels and do better, do better than well, this. Well, my father always said, give him the last word and I'll give your father the same. So thank you so much. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Well, everyone, many have had the opportunity to, tra to travel recently, of course. It's been a long time coming for so many of us during COVID-19. But travel could be nearly impossible in some parts of the country just in time for the holidays. We'll tell you what you need to know to be prepared right after this. We've got a massive winter storm that's bearing down a very large section of this country. It's packing extreme cold and blizzard conditions. Let's go right now to meteorologist Derek Van Dam in the CNN Weather Center. Derek, this is a huge storm. A lot of people plan on traveling this week ahead of Christmas. Tell me, what do they need to know about when this snowstorm is coming? And of course, the bitter cold that might be along with it. Yeah, when is it going to arrive? Well, look, it's already impacting the northwestern portions of our country. Of course, it's in its infancy. Tomorrow, being Wednesday, it's going to pick up some steam. And then Thursday and Friday, that is the two days. Those are the two days that will deliver our blockbuster winter storm right before the holidays. 
Terrible planning, but the potential here for blizzard conditions, flash freeze uh, temperatures dropping 50 to 60 degrees Fahrenheit in some instances, and the potential uh, for bitterly cold, cold weather that is going to be dangerous in many occasions. So let's highlight it, get to the brass tacks, because this is the storm system that, again, is impacting the Pacific Northwest, now making its way towards Denver. Denver, you will literally have a 50 degree temperature drop uh, from Thursday into Friday as that cold front slides in and draws in the Arctic air. Then by Thursday afternoon, we'll start to see our first snowflakes fly in and around Chicago. But this is when the storm is deepening. This is when it's getting its most intense. And by Friday, we continue to see the wind wrap in behind it and blow all the snow that's fallen on the ground across the Great Lakes, the plains, and into the Midwest, with rain, by the way, along the East Coast. This is a look at the 70 million Americans that are under some sort of winter weather alerts. And I want to pay attention to the blizzard warnings that have just been hoisted across South Central Minnesota. Now we also have 75 million Americans under wind chill advisories and this goes from the border of Canada all the way to the Gulf of Mexico and huge population density. I mentioned this storm still in its infancy. There it is. You can see it not that impressive on radar right now, but trust me, it is coming people and it is going to pack quite a punch when it rolls through the central parts of the U.S. In fact, uh, this is some of the coldest air in Denver that they've seen in 32 years. Uh, we are going to have temperatures across the United States, uh, really about 80% of the population experiencing temperatures below 32 degrees, 50 million Americans below zero. I mean, that is just incredible, Laura. I mean, I'm looking at my home state of Minnesota right there and the temperatures yeah. are facing right now. Everyone stay safe and keep apprised of what's going on. Thank you so much. You got it. You know, tonight... The powerful House Ways and Means Committee is releasing its report on former President Donald Trump's tax returns. We're going to have the very latest, so stay with us. So we have a major development tonight. We're getting new information on Trump's tax returns. And our team has been combing through this report that the House Ways and Means Committee voted to release tonight. I want to get right to Democratic Congressman Dan Kildee of Michigan. He sits on the House Ways and Means Committee and is taking the time to join us this evening. Congressman, thank you for being here. Now, you have seen these tax returns. And I'm wondering, what did you learn, given the fact that for part of it, we've seen some portions of his tax information. You got the cases in New York. You got the 2020 New York Times expose piece. What were the key takeaways from this actual return? Well, there are two things. One is the extent to which uh, former President Trump used the tax code to his benefit. Now, you know, that could be very legal. I'm I'm not sure that we can come to any conclusions about the legality. There are questions that are unanswered. There are a lot of... um, of claims that lack documentation, Mm -hmm. use of charitable contributions or charitable donations, loans uh, to family members that need to be examined. There's a whole lot there. And it's really interesting to see the extent to which the president, then president, was able to avoid paying what most of us would think would be his fair share Mm -hmm. of taxes. He's a very wealthy individual. Uh, But the real point of this, and the other real surprise to me, if there was a surprise, it's that this mandatory audit program that we're aware of at the IRS that goes back to the Nixon era was dormant Mm. during the Trump years. It wasn't even until April of 2019 when the chairman of our committee, Richard Neal, sent the letter to the IRS, to the Treasury Department, asking for these returns under 
Section 6103 of the tax code. It wasn't until that very day that the first of these returns were flagged for audit. They had simply failed to do that at all. And they never completed any of the what so-called mandatory audits of the President of the United States during President Trump's term of office. During his tenure as president, the mandatory reporting or mandatory auditing requirements under the IRS codebook under their internal rules, was completely avoided. I find that stunning um, to think that that could have been the case. And just the idea, and again, you talk about some of the criticism of the why now and the idea, well, is there really a legitimate legislative purpose here? There was the statement by some Republicans that this was all pretextual, that, hold on, a lame duck Congress is suddenly wanting these, which is not true. It's been years in the making, number one. But the idea you describe sounds to me like there might be a, a, a legitimate legislative hook to say, was a law actually followed? Did the process actually take place? What do you say to those who look at this, though, and say, this is, come on, you, you can't do anything about this at the end of a Democratic-run House Ways and Means Committee. What is the point of this? What do you say? Well, first of all, we initiated this in 2019 mm-hmm. with the intention of determining whether we needed to take up legislation to address what seemed to be a weakness in the audits of presidents. I mean, the president kept talking about his returns being under audit. He failed to release his returns, as every president since Nixon had done. And so a big question mark hung over this. But we needed to get the facts. And so we asked for the facts to determine whether the IRS was properly enforcing the law on the president of the United States. The reason it took so long was because of Donald Trump and because of those who support him. Many of the same Republicans now crying foul supported his effort to sue us, to delay, 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 until finally the Supreme Court of the United States, just a few weeks ago, said, no, the Ways and Means Committee is correct. These documents should be delivered to them. And so we've had just a couple of weeks to examine the information come to the conclusion that, yes, legislation is warranted, craft that legislation, and now hopefully move that to the floor of the House of Representatives. Whether our Republican allies agree that we should have this legislation or not is something that remains to be seen. They have said that they would support it without looking at the documents that make the argument for it. It's really important to point out, there's no more compelling argument than two important facts. One, the fact that these audits were not conducted when President Trump was in office. Which is mandatory. Mandatory, under IRS rules. Mm -hmm. Not by law, but under IRS practice. That's one piece of it. The other really important piece is to look at that in the context of an examination of the returns themselves. Those returns raise all sorts of red flags. And we think in order for Congress to act and the American public to judge our actions, we have to be able to look at both of those facts. And that's why we felt it was important to release the information. Well, that first fact, the idea of it being IRS rules, not under law, that to me says that there is a huge gap between what ought to be the case and what could be legislated. So the the goal would ultimately be, I'm assuming, to legislate a way so that it is mandatory under the law. Would that be for not only a incumbent president, but for a candidate as well? Our legislation would apply to the president of the United States. 
we do have other legislation that we've considered as mm-hmm. part of our HR1, our political reform that Democrats have advanced, that would require candidates, major candidate, uh, candidates for president mm-hmm. of the United States to release their returns. But this is specific to the president of the United States, an individual with incredible and unique power to influence policy, the economy of the nation, their own personal financial well-being. And so we feel like there's a special standard that ought to apply to a person with that much unchecked power. Speaking of special, of course, the former president thinks that he is especially picked on as opposed to prior presidents. There has been claims that the Congress is weaponizing his personal information, trying to have a punitive measure over him, that this curiosity about whether the IRS completed these mandatory audits seems to just have a spotlight on him. Is there any truth to that, that this is something that was only looked at because it was Trump or not? No, I mean, but Trump is a unique individual in the presidency, a person with hundreds of different, um, you know, corporate identities that he can hide behind and move money in between. And so it is a unique set of circumstances for sure. But President Trump could have answered one of these two questions Mm. if he had simply done what he said he would do. And that is he himself releases tax returns. Remember, going all the way back to 2015, he kept saying over and over again, he'll release his returns. And we've been waiting all this time. We still would have had to seek, under Section 6103 of the tax code, information about whether the IRS is properly auditing those returns. But he could have resolved the big question that the Republicans seem to have such a big difficulty with, and that is the release of the tax returns themselves. He promised to do it. We need that information now because of the questions that have arisen around whether or not the IRS did its job. I don't think they did. This is as much an indictment of the IRS as it is anybody. But, but Donald Trump can't have it both ways. He can't insist that he's going to release the, the um, returns, promise transparency, and then gripe when, for a legitimate legislative purpose, we decide to do that ourselves. And Congressman, on the screen right now, there's a statement released by a spokesperson for Trump talking about this unprecedented leak, they're calling it, by a lame duck Democrats as proof that they are playing a political game. They are losing. If this injustice can happen to President Trump, it can happen to all Americans without cause. Congressman, on that point, you know, we've heard more than once, right, this idea of former president saying, They're only going through me to try to get to you. It's really you all, the American public, they're trying to get to. Is there a harmful precedent that could be set by looking at a president's tax returns that could somehow trickle down to the average American in a way that should cause concern? I think we're going to set one president, one precedent or another. Mm -hmm. I worry more about the precedent that says we have suspicion that there's something wrong going on. The IRS is not doing its job enforcing the tax laws on the president of the United States. The president's returns are complex and raise a lot of questions. The precedent that I want to avoid is Congress saying, meh, too bad. He's the president. There's one set of rules for people like him and another set of rules for the hundreds of thousands of Americans who, for no other reason than getting a child tax credit, are facing an audit by the IRS. That is a precedent we don't, we don't want to enforce and reinforce this precedent that people at the very top of the economy have their own special set of rules. Donald Trump has operated as if he was exempt from law for a long time. Finally, he's being held to account. Top of the economy or the top of an administration as well. Congressman, thank you so much. And please get home safely to Michigan. It's going to be right. cold. It will so be. other reports. So nice talking to you. Thank, thank you. you. 
I want to turn now to CNN chief congressional correspondent Manu Raju and someone who's been reporting on Donald Trump's finances for not years, but decades, everyone. David K. Johnson is here. He's a lecturer at Syracuse Law School. Manu, let me begin with you for a moment here because you have been going through this report. And I understand the Speaker Pelosi has just put out a statement. What did she say? Yeah, she actually indicated that they actually plan to move on legislation in response to this report, in response to this investigation by the Ways and Means Committee that found that that mandatory presidential audit program under the IRS had not moved forward. And in the words of the committee, was, quote, dormant during the presidential years under Donald Trump and didn't act until 2019 when Chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, Richard Neal, sent a letter in April of that year to the IRS asking for tax returns. That spawned the audit, they say. That should have been done when Donald Trump became president in 2017, but it was not done. And as a result, Nancy Pelosi, in her final days in power here, is indicating they will move forward likely this week on legislation. She says in a a statement, the Ways and Means Committee report makes clear the legislative steps that must now be taken to guard the public trust. And we will move swiftly to advance Chairman Richard Neal's legislation requiring the Internal Revenue Service to conduct an annual audit of the president's finances. So expect that to come to the floor here, Laura, tomorrow, maybe the day after, but certainly by Friday when the Democrats, in their final days of power, plan to finish up business and the Republicans take control in January. Mano, I mean, I do not envy you in terms of going through this report as well. There's a lot to be learned there. It's very dense material. What else are you learning from this actual report, aside from what Speaker Pelosi intends to do to codify some of the shortcomings we're talking about? Yeah, there are two separate reports. There's one in the committee's investigation about that annual audit program and which uh, uh, Congressman Kildee was discussing with you just now where they found deficiencies in that program. They also showed that in 2018, uh, the White House press secretary said that Donald Trump was under a mandatory audit. That is not true according to this report. Now, there's that separate report, the Joint Committee on Taxation, which is essentially nonpartisan number crunchers that went through Donald Trump's tax returns from those tax years that have been requested over six years, as well as his business tax returns as well. They get into detail analyzing the returns. They, they say they have no judgment about some of the deductions that he took, but they also say that perhaps some of these issues could be looked at further, such as certain charitable deductions, other business deductions that he took, suggesting that they're not making an opinion one way or the other, but said it's something that could require further exploration. But there's a lot more to dig into as we look into these numbers from this report that just came out from the Joint Committee on Taxation. And then when we get the actual returns themselves, Laura, which will go in much more detail about former President Trump's finances, and we should expect that number after some of the sensitive information is redacted within a number of days. Those redactions will be very important. David, I want to bring you in here because, I mean, as we're learning, right, we've heard there should have been a mandatory audit since at least 2017, but there was nothing performed from the IRS under their own rules, it seems, until the chairman of this committee started to ask for the information. And then apparently people got into gear on this. Why do you think that he was not audited until the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee raised the issue in 2019? Well, Donald Trump thumbed his nose at the law all the time, including uh, refusing to have his tax returns turned over to Congress as required by a law that says they shall be turned over on request. And I'd also point out that the IRS commissioner, Donald 
uh, appointed and who I've been very critical of was a Beverly Hills tax lawyer whose specialty was helping people accused of being tax cheats. So of the six years of returns the committee received with the approval of the Supreme Court, only one was put under audit and that audit isn't done. But there's a lot of material here, Laura, uh, raising questions about our tax system. I mean, how long are audits supposed to take? And I want you to know I'm not inviting one. I would just like to know how long are they supposed to take? Oh, audits can in some cases literally, especially complex corporate ones, go on for years as uh, the people being audited resist producing the business records to back up what's on their tax returns. And we don't have that in uh, these materials, including the ones that will be released in a few days. What we have is what Trump put on his tax returns, not the business records backing them up. Did he actually make the charitable contributions that he took on his return? Did he actually make the interest payments? Uh, did he properly account for uh, large gifts or loans to family members and others? You have to have the business records to know that. So I can see where you're going with this, and I often joke around how America's favorite pastime really isn't baseball. It, it's truly litigation, and it seems increasingly so um, prosecution on these matters. And so if he didn't do the things you're talking about, if the questions raised are actually resulting in criminal responses or criminal allegations, how common are tax crime convictions? I mean, it sounds like there's a lot at stake. Well, here I hope that the people in the audience are sitting down. There are about 160 million individual tax returns filed each year. There are roughly 500 to 600 convictions, and most of those are drug dealers who don't report their income, politicians who accept bribes, or business owners who bribe politicians. There is no serious effort in this country to pursue high-level tax cheating. Uh, at DC Report, the news organization I run, uh, three years ago, we reported on the Koch papers about the third Koch brother who had been under criminal investigation until his next door neighbor, Donald Trump, became president and showed how he was collecting more than $100 million a year through what's an obviously illegal scheme and nothing has happened. The investigation was shut down shortly after Trump became president. We make no serious effort to find tax cheating by people at the top. But if you're a wage earner, we make sure you are absolutely fully taxed. There's almost nothing you can do to cheat. At least two Americas, it seems, you described just now. Manu, I want to bring you in here. I want to know how Republicans are reacting tonight. Well, we're hearing a lot of Republican defense of Donald Trump, the members on the Ways and Means Committee, the GOP side. In fact, all came out to the cameras immediately after this vote, attacked the Democrats from moving forward on this, saying there was a different way to move ahead. They said this should have been guarded in secrecy, should have sent to continue to be analyzed behind closed doors by the Joint Committee on Taxation. They contended Democrats were weaponizing this all along. And uh, the spokesman person for uh, former President Donald Trump said in a statement that this is a, quote, unprecedented leak by lame duck Democrats. He contended they're playing a political game they are losing. But it was the result of those legal battles for years that Donald Trump tried to keep these private, tried to keep these secret, did not want to release it. He lost that legal battle. Democrats now in their final days in power, using that power, releasing this information, and now plan to provide even more details of his returns in the days ahead. Laura? Manu, 
David Kay, thank you so much. For Kay Johnston, thank you so much, both of you, for this important insight tonight. We've also got uncertainty at the border. The White House asking the Supreme Court to lift a pandemic-era policy the Trump administration used to block migrants from entering the United States. Thousands of lives are hanging in the balance, and they're waiting for a decision. We're going to El Paso after this. The Biden administration just hours ago asking the justices to drop one of the nation's most controversial immigration policies, Title 42. It's not clear, by the way, when the court will ultimately rule, even though they did give the deadline of 5 p.m. today for the Biden administration to respond to their request. But right now in Mexico, thousands wait just to cross the border. A chance at seeking asylum in the United States is but a few feet away. And the conditions many live in are unthinkable. The options are few and, frankly, dangerous. Meanwhile, U.S. cities from the border to the Big Apple are bracing. Shelters are already packed. Supplies are already running out. And the fear, the already overwhelming flood of humanity, appears poised to double. The Biden administration told the court they know dropping a Trump-era policy known as Title 42 will lead to more migrants crossing the border illegally. And that's something the system simply can't handle. Our Ed Lavendera is in El Paso, Texas. As the fate of Title 42 remains in legal limbo at the U.S. Supreme Court, officials here in El Paso say they are moving ahead as if Title 42 is going to be lifted and preparing for what they expect to be a massive surge of migrants at the U.S. southern border, especially here in El Paso. So that means creating more shelter space and getting food and medical supplies into the region as quickly as possible. But as the waiting game continues here in El Paso, what we've seen play out today is new levels of political gamesmanship. The day started off with Texas National Guard soldiers and Texas state troopers setting up a nearly mile-long chain-link fence covered in razor wire at the very point where migrants had been crossing into the U.S. to turn themselves into Border Patrol agents. Uh, The county judge here in El Paso described this as a a political stunt by the Texas governor and said it is a complete waste of resources. We asked the mayor who had declared a state of emergency over the weekend uh, what he thought of the chain link fence. He says that the governor's office told him that this would be a three-hour training exercise, Uh, but now the mayor says he wants to speak with the governor's office and the Department of Public Safety to understand exactly why this fence is needed. El Paso officials expected that the National Guard here in El Paso would be working in more of a humanitarian role, not an immigration deterrent role. So uh, quite a bit of controversy surrounding that fence. And essentially, we should also point out, it's simply not working. Uh, We have seen throughout the course of the day, migrants simply just walking around the fence and then getting back over to the U.S. side. We've also seen migrants going through the chain link fence. So if it was supposed to work as uh, blocking migrants from crossing into the U.S., that is just simply not working. Laura? Ed Lavendera, thank you so much. And, you know, as is often the case at the border, the job of law enforcement is inexorably linked with humanitarian needs. So what's different here is that at its core, you have a legal fight, one that's rather unique. And think about 
19 Republican-led states demanding the court keep what is essentially a COVID lockdown in place. Let's discuss now with Maria Cardona, David Urban, and Josh Campbell, who is all with us today. Let me begin with you, Josh, on this issue, because we're talking about some of the conditions that are being faced, that are faced by so many. I mean, the idea of the humanitarian needs, there is also the law enforcement angle and what needs to take place and the presence of law enforcement to try to moderate what's happening. Talk to me about this, this tension at play. That's one of the key issues and the reason why this is so difficult. You have a humanitarian crisis that is running head on into an enforcement crisis. Now, on the humanitarian side, obviously, you have thousands of migrants. Many of them have made treacherous journeys uh, through South and Central America, working their way up to the U.S. border. Many of them, the victims of crime along the way. And once they reach the border, they're living in squalid conditions in very cold temperatures. So clearly a humanitarian crisis. And on the flip side, literally on the other side of the issue on the border, you have have an enforcement crisis. You have hundreds of law enforcement officers who are working grueling hours, who are strained. And the fact of the matter is, whether or not Title 42 is actually rescinded or not, their workload will continue, whether they are expelling migrants or processing them. And one thing is clear, and that is the Border Patrol and Immigration and Customs Enforcement, they are not presently equipped, Laura, to actually deal with this issue. We know that Border Patrol has tried to plus up some of their staff, hiring contractors to take the load off some of the enforcement agents who are in the field. But just look at some of the recent numbers. I mean, in the Del Rio sector alone, uh, there in Texas, uh, the number of migrant encounters recently doubled from some 1,700 to 3,500. So, you know, we've seen some of these so-called decompression operations where Border Patrol are trying to take migrants who are in high capacity areas and move them to areas where there is more space. But a lot of work to be done there. And finally, I'll point out, and Laura, you know this so well, federal law enforcement officers are not policymakers. And so it is so perplexing to look at officials in Washington, the people who could actually solve this crisis, who continue to engage in gamesmanship and push this down the road, they're not actually bringing solutions to the table and and action. And it's worth pointing out, they're not the ones who are the key stakeholders there at the border, the migrants who are facing this humanitarian crisis and the law enforcement officers who are trying to enforce the law. Such an important point, Josh. And some more figures here. I mean, since Biden took office, Human Rights First is saying that it's identified more than 13,000 incidents of kidnapping, torture, rape, or other violent attacks of people who've been blocked or expelled back to Mexico under Title 42. So you get the law enforcement angle on this side of the border, and then what happens to people who are leaving as well. Let me bring in David Urban and Maria Cardona to the conversation. Maria, you were nodding about the idea of this really this this chasm mm-hmm. between what's happening on the border and the policy decisions and choices either being made or that are available. It's heartbreaking, Laura. You know, I used to be communications director under what used to be the INS. And I saw this uh, all the time. And what is so heartbreaking about this is that there can be a fix. To Josh's point, the fix is not at the White House. The fix is in Congress. Congress is the only entity that can actually figure out what we need to do And it's not rocket science. We have had bills in Congress with all of the pieces of legislation that need to be passed in order to put some kind of order at our border and figure out what is the proper flow. We cannot continue this way. And we have a ton of legislators in Congress who talk about wanting a solution, but then run and scream about the border being in chaos, about the lack of border security, when in fact it is in their hands to work with Democrats, and mostly Republicans are the ones that are screaming about that, 
Democrats have several bills that they would love to uh, Republicans help with in coming together to figure this out. But the problem is you can't do this as a one off. And you'll hear Republicans say over and over again, we cannot look at anything having to do with citizenship or letting in additional legal migration Mm. until we have border security. That is a red flag right there, because what does border security mean? Well, it means means you have a secure border. It's pretty clear. You have to have some form of security at the border that people just can't walk across the border. You have to have a wall, a fence, something. And so, no, no, let me finish. So you, 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 you correctly point out that we do need to effectively address this in a holistic manner, right? Mm-hmm. There needs to be comprehensive immigration reform. Mm-hmm. And, and both parties have kicked the can down the road, right? They've done it for a long time. Republicans have tried, kicked it down. Democrats have kicked it down. This president hasn't even been to the border. The vice president has been to the border. It's a crime what's going on. But you're not going to do it. We can't address any of this until you stem the flow. This is like the drug question. Do you, do you affect demand or do you affect supply? If people know they can just simply walk no. across the street. Listen, no. okay. if people know they can walk across the street, Maria, they're going to walk across no. the street. But, David, here's the thing. Yeah. What you are describing, your definition of border security then yeah, sure is closing the border. Yeah, that's because exactly correct. That's that is not well you can't we you can't Why? okay Why and can't what you? you're because what you're talking about is close do you know how many legal border points of entry there are if you're talking about closing the border you are talking about closing legal commerce to our I'm biggest no, trading no, 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 partner, no. our second biggest trading I, I, I'm partner. I'm saying that Yes, you, you are. No. But see, when you say, what are you saying? I'm saying that you should, say you should not be able that? to wait across the water in El Paso, when Texas. When you say that... Wait, wait, hold it, on, hold on. You think you should be able to wait across the river in El Paso, Texas, walk downtown and say, I'm here. Well, it's a yes or no. It's a yes or no. Yeah, do you know why yes? Because that's legal. That's legal. What they're doing is legal legal because they're going through a legal port of entry and they're presenting themselves to Border Patrol. They're not going through a legal port of entry. That is immigration law. That is immigration law. Yes, most of those are legal ports of entry. They are not legal ports of entry. There is a fence. We want to hear from both of you. And what I'm hearing is to unpack if the audience can hear both of your perspectives. The idea that you're suggest you were suggesting to close the border and all non-legal ports of entry. Absolutely. You're saying Absolutely. to close the border broadly would be a, would be a crime, given that you're supposed to have asylum. To tell me, is Absolutely. there a compromise? But you can only seek asylum at a legal port of entry. Yes, you can't you just know, walk you, across a non-legal. Do you know, port. Do you know what the compromise is? The what compromise is, is the 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 bills that exist right now in Congress that Democrats have had ready. That frankly, President Biden has presented the very first day that he was in office, because you know what that helps do, David? It actually brings more resources to the border. To your point, if you are going to keep every single person that wants to go to the border to find asylum or to present themselves, you're going to need a hell of a lot more border well, patrol. To, well, and so, so then, so then that's, that's in the bill. How, how is it fair Additional people- resources for border security is something that Democrats have always championed. But you know what else you need to do? You can't just close the border, like you say, because you also have to deal with why these people want to come here. What is the legal flow that we should have? We are desperate for work. We need more workers. And without that, without both of those, David, you will never have a border. I'll give you you the last word to respond quickly, David. So, So folks in Africa and Europe in the Far East who have these same problems, economic issues at home, they want to get to the United States to have a better life. They can't get on a plane in Nigeria, in Ukraine, and just simply fly to JFK and show up. 
You can't do it. That border is closed. The, bo- the southern border is not closed. We need to do something about it. And to lay it squarely at the feet of Republicans is just not, not truly. It's not Both good. parties need to there work go. together. But Democrats have always been the uh, ones I'm that are open sure. to we'll the agree, real we'll solution. We'll agree to disagree. We'll agree not, to disagree. You well, know, Republicans we'll have always used it as a political football. Oh, and that's just man. the reality. This was an espresso Anna cappuccino <laughs> at 10.32 p.m. I'm here we bring it. We I'm here, bring no, it. I'm here for it. And it was a great conversation. And what I took away was both parties need to work together. You know what? David and I can solve it, Laura. Well, that, there, there was the scone added to the cappuccino. <laughs> and espresso. We'll wait for that next thing, everyone. Look, coming up next, a candidate seemingly fakes his resume and gets elected to Congress. How did that happen? We'll look into it next. Well, incoming New York Republican Congressman George Santos is under fire tonight. Frankly, he has been for the last two days. Why? Well, there was a review by the New York Times and CNN that revealed significant discrepancies in parts of his resume. Among those misrepresentations, well, claiming he got degrees at Baruch College and NYU, yet both schools tell CNN their records don't reflect him ever attending either. Santos also claiming he had stints at Citigroup and Goldman Sachs, but neither bank has records of his employment. Santos has not yet personally responded to the allegations. However, his attorney putting out a statement, writing, quote, Santos represents the kind of progress that the left is so threatened by, a gay, Latino immigrant and Republican who won a Biden district in overwhelming fashion by showing everyday voters that there is a better option than the broken promises and failed policies of the Democratic Party, unquote. Now, some Democrats are demanding answers and even calling for investigations into the incoming freshman congressman. I want to bring in New York State Democratic Chair Jay Jacobs. Welcome to the show. I have a lot of questions about this entire story, of course, it really has been stunning to so many people. Jay, I, I wonder initially, one of the first that comes to mind, I mean, in, in just in your title of the New York State Democratic Chair, many are wondering, how did this escape in opposition research? Sure. Well, you know, I, I will tell you that there was a fairly comprehensive opposition research report done. Um, hmm. The DCCC does those reports. And um, as has been reported, and I will tell you that a good number of the these uh, uh, inaccuracies were did come up in that report. And the campaign tried very hard to get uh, media attention on some of these things. But because of the fact that I don't think anybody took the Santos campaign or George Santos himself as seriously as it turns out he is. Uh, it just wasn't covered. And there were a lot of other things going on in the media market in New York. So it, it isn't for a lack of effort on the part of the campaign to get some of this out. Now, of course, the New York Times report, which I read on Monday morning, and I was astounded by, I have to tell you, um, brought out quite a lot more detail. And of course, they've got a lot more resources. But I, I will tell you that I think the focus really has to be on George Santos and on, on having him explain and uh, tell tell everybody that uh, voted for him exactly why it was that he wasn't honest about his resume. 
It is important, obviously, and you are right to think about him being the person who is rightly and squarely under the microscope. But I just want to be clear. Are you suggesting that you had some of the information before and it wasn't reported in the media or that you're saying that most of this had not come to light and you were unaware through the opposition research? Which is it? No, the, the, the campaign um, and the DCCC did the report. I personally didn't get the report. That's that's not what the state party does. Each campaign runs, you know, a, a more or less independent campaign as such. But uh, I will tell you that they did have, and I spoke with um, Robert Zimmerman, who was the candidate for the Democratic Party uh, on Monday morning, just after the story came out. And he explained that some of this, uh, uh, in, these inaccuracies uh, were, were in that report, and they okay. did try to get them to the media. So it, there, there was that attempt. And of course, you know, there was this general idea that he had a shady background as it related to his finances. So those those were things that we, uh, or they were trying to push uh, and get out. But again, the New York Times did uncover quite a bit more. So real quick, what now? I mean, he's going to be he's going to be sworn into office in January. Will Republicans be able to do anything or the constituents in this particular jurisdiction district do anything about it? Well, he happens to be my congressman. Uh, and I will tell you that constituents in, in uh, my neighborhood aren't happy about it at all. But it really is up to the members of Congress. They have the exclusive uh, right to decide whether some should be seated and once seated if someone should be expelled. And given that the Republicans are taking over in January, I don't have a great confidence that they're going to want to reduce their very slim majority by yet another member by expelling or not seating George Santos, particularly because he's already pledged his support uh, for the speakership of Kevin McCarthy. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't I don't see them taking action. What I will tell you is there were so many red flags in that bombshell report by the New York Times, I'd be uh, really uh, astonished if uh, uh, there wasn't some uh, U.S. prosecutors uh, somewhere taking a look at this, and you know, uh, particularly the, uh, the the campaign finance issues, which Ooh. are really, 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 really raising eyebrows. How he maintains with uh, what seems to be. Um, you know, a really weak background in, in finance, how he could have come up with $700,000 personally to lend to his own campaign. I, I don't know how that's possible, but people need to investigate that. I think that's his greatest vulnerability, frankly. He may be seated, but I think that, you know, he's going to have himself um, a, a lot of answering to do with, with uh, some U.S. attorney uh, uh, here, maybe in the Eastern District, that will probably be taking a look at this and wanting to know exactly if those campaign finance reports were legitimate or not. Because campaign oh. finance fraud is, is a major, major deal, and uh, they take that very seriously. Well, we will see most immediately in the court of the electorate and the court, obviously, of Kevin McCarthy going forward. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. Well, speaking of courts of law, the Justice Department, they're out with a very important warning. Do you realize that thousands of kids are targeted, and they have been in the past year with, quote, sextortion? I'm going to explain what that is next. A very stark public safety alert from the Justice Department and the FBI that parents of teenage boys need to be aware of. Predators using social media platforms are targeting minors, mostly boys, tricking them into providing sexually explicit photos and then threatening to release those images unless some sort of a ransom is paid. 
This is called sextortion. And officials say that at least 3,000 minors have already been targeted this year alone. I want to bring in CNN National Security Analyst Juliet Kayyem, and Josh Campbell is also back. Josh, we don't often see the U.S. Justice Department and the FBI issuing a public safety alert. So tell me, what is the significance of this and how these scams work? Yeah, this is federal law enforcement telling parents out there to stop. Pay attention. This is important. They're seeing the skyrocketing in these online scams that are targeting kids. And in the scheme, as you mentioned, that's called sextortion, what we've seen in so many of these cases is you have a child that's online on Facebook, on Instagram, on Snapchat. They receive a message from someone who, uh, in in the typical case, uh, pretends to be a young girl, engages in conversation over a period of time. Sometimes it's hours, sometimes it's days. They convince the uh, unsuspecting boy to send them some type of romantic photo telling them that I'll send one of you in return. Sometimes they actually use child pornography to send messages uh, to other kids. And once the victim actually submits that intimate photo of themselves, what typically happens is the scammer breaks cover and says, all right, you have now have to pay me oftentimes thousands of dollars or I'm going to release this photo to the public, to your friends, to your family. And sadly, what we've seen in so many of these cases is not just young people paying the ransom, but so many young boys out there in so many cases have been so distraught they've actually ended up taking their own lives or it's unbelievable to think about and juliet the doj says generally sextortion only ends when a child either tells an adult or the offender right. is somehow identified by law enforcement i mean you're a parent how do you talk to your kids about yeah. online safety in a case like this I mean, what do you even tell them Oh, and you, I mean, you tell them if your kid is old enough to be online and to understand what's going on, they're old enough to understand that this is very likely to happen. We tend to infantilize our kids in ways that are not good for them and not safe for them. It's better to be direct. So four things I would say, you know, identify that this is actually an issue. I, we've been aware of it for a little bit, but especially for uh, young boys, they need to know that, that that this could be a trap, whatever it is they're doing. You're not going to be able to control everything they do, uh, but but that they should be aware of it. The second is that the extortionist Make it clear the extortionist is the bad person, that that whatever has happened or might be happening is the extortionist who's the bad person. Three, and this is more generally, talk to your kids in terms of danger, not right and wrong. Kids are not, teenage boys are not going to be receptive to right and wrong. They might be more receptive to danger in terms of this could be harmful to them if they do something uh, that is stupid. And then if, if um, you know, if, if, if it does happen and, and you are have that kind of relationship with your kids, uh, make it clear to them that um, uh, that that you're the safe haven, you know, that you just are not going to judge this. This is what the, these boys are committing suicide because they feel like they will be judged. And I think you parents have got to get that out of uh, the dialogue that this is dangerous, not right or wrong. This is so important. There's this old saying of saying you, you don't want your kids to think, oh, no, I can't tell mom she'll kill me. You want yeah. them to think I've got to call mom when things grow out or dad. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, everyone. No judgment. It's really important. Yeah. No, thank, thank you so much. We'll put some resources up now. If you think you or your child was a victim of a crime like this, you can go to tips.fbi.gov to report. Report, report, report. We'll be right back. Nearly two years after the attack intended to overthrow our democracy, the book is now closing on the bipartisan investigation by Congress. Tomorrow, the January 6th committee will issue its final report. At the panel's final public meeting yesterday, it recommended that the Justice Department should charge the former president with at least four federal crimes. 
Thanks for watching, everyone. Our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.